Hey, I'm Michael Whistler, and in this episode, I want to explore one of the books and movies that have been foundational to my love of science fiction and for why I decided to become a storyteller. In this episode, we're talking about Jurassic Park. Like, you know, that one right there. Yep. Yeah, I'm that nerd who, you know, put the shirt on and then was like, yeah, let's do a podcast about Jurassic Park. Why not? It just so happens that Jurassic Park was one of those movies I got to see in theaters as a kid. I was in fifth grade at the time, and it left quite an impression on me. It was a really fascinating experience for me that first time. I remember actually thinking um, that this might be one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And, and, and I remember thinking that just at the, at the point when the helicopter is just flying in to the island. So, so much of the movie is still ahead of me. And I was like, I think I'm witnessing something pretty cool here. Um, and I was not disappointed, which is, which is great. You know, I almost didn't get to go see the movie just as an interesting aside and context setting for myself. I remember having to talk my way into getting to see Jurassic Park as a fifth grader. Um, because my conservative parents were concerned about, um, some of the things that, that were being said in a sort of conservative media, uh, about the movie. I, I think it was, if recollection serves, uh, folks like Rush Limbaugh and whatnot complaining about the movie being feminist propaganda, folks, uh, because, you know, the dinosaurs are all female and, they figure out a way to procreate. And that's a really, really wildly insane uh, interpretation and and really off the mark. Um, they, the females don't figure out how to procreate on their own. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, which if you haven't, why are you watching or listening to this podcast? But, uh, <laughs> but you know, they have to kind of become males to actually do that. So it's hmm, not quite that argument, but yeah, I remember that was a, an interesting discussion. I'm like, um, really? And I just remember we had to have this conversation. It wasn't like my parents were diametrically opposed to that. They're not close minded people by any stretch of the imagination and definitely more conservative, uh, than I am. Um, and I remember having to sort of talk through, Hey, you know, I want to check this out. All my friends are checking this out and it seems like it should be pretty cool. And look, it's a movie, it's dinosaurs, you know, I'm, I'm a, a relatively intelligent fifth grader. I think I can sort through this. And sure enough, you know, that that's not at all what the movie was about. Uh, <laughs> instead, it was a really quite a magical journey into this sort of imaginative uh, scenario that really lit a fire in me. And so I'm glad I got to go. I'm glad I talked my way into getting to go uh, because it was a really 
formative, pivotal moment uh, for me to be able to see that on the big screen, walk out of that movie and just be like, I, you know, at the time, that's the best thing I've ever seen, <laughs> you know? I've certainly seen better movies since then, admittedly. And yet Jurassic Park, the first movie, stands the test of time in a lot of ways. It's still a fascinating, well-executed movie with a lot of suspense. Uh, The lessons Spielberg learned in Jaws in terms of like having to wait and not show the shark right away, right? Because if you know the story behind Jaws, you know that the robot uh, shark uh, wasn't working a lot of the time when they were shooting that in Martha's Vineyard. And so they had to kind of get creative. Spielberg had to get creative about being able to still shoot the movie, execute scenes, and maybe not show the shark uh, as often uh, or as much as he uh, had originally planned. But what that ended up doing is working really well for the movie in terms of building suspense. And I think that... Spielberg took that lesson really well into the movie Jurassic Park and really is patient about uh, doling out and building up suspense and doling out little bits of um, just breadcrumbs along the way to get us anticipating and excited about seeing the dinosaur. So that by the midpoint, when you finally get that big T-Rex scene, uh, it, it feels really satisfying. Part of the excitement is there's the wait and the anticipation to get to that moment. And then finally, you know, you get to see T-Rex, uh, and then all the other craziness that happens. Well, that was a really cool experience as a kid. And a few years later, um, I was talking with a friend, uh, who had read the book, and was really encouraging me to, to check out the books. Really fascinating. He was really fascinated by the chaos theory um, discussion in the book and uh, encouraged me to check it out. I ended up grabbing a copy of the book. And at the time, I was living in Brazil because I was born in South America in Brazil where my parents uh, were missionaries. And at this point, I had returned from living for a year in the U.S. where I saw Jurassic Park in theaters and... Uh, back to Brazil. So at this point, when I uh, bought a copy of Jurassic Park, I actually bought it in Portuguese. So it's my own interesting little journey there with that. So the first time I ever read Jurassic Park, I read the translation Portuguese, not the original English in which Michael Crichton wrote the book. Still fascinating, cool story um, that really captivated my imagination in terms of what was possible in getting to really imagine some some far out there scenarios in terms of science fiction. And that was really, I think, where the love affair, my love affair with hard science fiction really took off. Once I read Jurassic Park and got to explore this world of uh, where the idea of cloning dinosaurs is made incredibly plausible. Like clearly there are things that are just not, not don't pan out to be the case, right? Uh, The mosquitoes that we find trapped in amber 
uh, I don't believe are quite as abundant as Crichton might make them out to be. And certainly the preservation of DNA is not nearly, nearly good enough uh, to really be something we could clone from. There's far better chances that we would be able to clone uh, from uh, grinding up enough bones from dinosaurs. Uh, but of course, that's a, a troubling proposition there too, because even those bones are really mostly rock. They're fossils and very little uh, information, uh, genetic information is preserved uh, in the process. Anyway, you, you you know, we can pick all that kind of stuff apart. And, you, you know, as a kid, I remember geeking out over some of the stuff. As a matter of fact, I still own my copy of the science of Jurassic Park and the Lost World, which I bought, you know, sometime after the second book came out and I devoured that right away. Pretty fun read. I remember, even though, you know, I wasn't that old, uh, just a kid, middle school, high school. I think middle school, reading through that. I do still own my Portuguese copy of the Dinosaur Park, or the Park of the Dinosaurs, as it was titled in Portuguese. But clearly, Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton. Maybe sometime I'll go back and read it again in Portuguese. Yeah, no, could be fun. We'll trip down memory lane. But anyway... Yeah, I geeked out over all that kind of science, and, and it was interesting to be able to see how Crichton went about building this plausible world and this this scenario, playing out with the scenario of what happens if we wield this power. And what's interesting for me about what Crichton does, and I think what Spielberg does well with the movie, is sort of the mingling of awe and terror <laughs> of sort of the ethical uh, questions uh, that come up with the awe of scientific discovery and the natural curiosity we have as human beings uh, to achieve something that if we can do something it's kind of it kind of seems inevitable that we will that someone will wield this and in the scenario of Jurassic Park, what's really fascinating is that profit really is the is the guiding force. We lose that a little bit in the movie. Uh, John Hammond is kind of presented as this nicer, uh, more kindly, misguided Santa Claus <laughs> in some ways, right? Whereas the John Hammond that Crichton crafted in the novel is much more of a hard capitalist. He's much more in this for the profit. Uh, and he's really seeking to exploit this to, to the maximum degree possible. In fact, in the book, there's much more discussion even about the nature of the dinosaurs and the fact that the park is, in so many ways, an illusion. An illusion designed to inspire awe to have that response from people and then part them with their dollars. It's a really dark kind of take on the idea of uh, scientific advancement and for profit and the exploitation uh, 
of both these living creatures and of people, uh, customers, as they come in and try to, you know, and want to experience this thing. And the fact that they're really kind of designing these dinosaurs to uh, really suit those needs. It's a really interesting discussion to have from the perspective of design. Uh, sorry, jo my job has me thinking about design a lot. In fact, uh, design management and all of those kinds of things. Working a lot with the design department, so I can't help but think about that now. <laughs> but yeah, Jurassic Park as a designed system, an illusion that draws people in, inspires awe, and gets them to shell out loads of money. That's really what John Hammond of the book is going after. We don't get that as much in the movie. It's a little more kindly, uh, maybe misguided, and just, um, you know, trying to create more than you could chew really the john hammond of the movie is basically this guy who bit off more than you could chew didn't understand the power he was wielding that he was unleashing in, in the process of doing this it's all an interesting discussion that springs from this central question that i think uh Crichton is asking which is what happens with scientific advancement when it's devoid of the ethical questions. Uh, you know, something, something has to drive scientific discovery. And in this case, it's capitalism, it's profit. It's a for-profit venture. Um, but how do we temper that? How do we balance that with the need for ethics? And some would say these are diametrically opposed perspectives that somehow you can't have uh, profit if you're ethical and, uh, or you can't have ethics if you're going to try to be profitable. But I would argue that there has to be a balance in there somewhere. In fact, Long-term profitability has to come through ethics because either you cease to exist or your customers cease to exist through unethical, deplorable behavior. So maybe that's oversimplifying it. That That is probably a bigger uh, cookie than, than I want to even bite off right now. Um, but there is a reality in which I don't think profit and ethics need exist at opposite ends of a spectrum. Uh, it maybe is a little more like a yin-yang situation where there's a paradox, and when we Westerners are pretty terrible at sort of appreciating paradox, but there's a paradox there where these things need to figure out how to work together. Um, but in classic uh, cautionary tale fashion, Crichton Crass for us, this fascinating story of what happens when those and when that paradox is not in some sort of balance, when there there isn't a, a means or even intention to bring those uh, two things into tension with each other, and uh, and try to hold that tension up 
and say, okay, we want to make something that is for profit. We also want to do it ethically and we want to, you know, do it with thoughtfulness and intentionality. What we end up getting is this cautionary tale of this park filled with these animals that we really barely understand who then, you know, get to run amok. And that's part of the fun of that sort of what a lot of people would probably classify as man versus nature kind of story. I mean, it's, it's Jaws in a different context in a lot of ways. Um, and then we get to experience, you know, that, that classic survival story. How are we going to get through this? How are we going to survive? But in the process, we, we get some interesting lessons in chaos theory. And that's where we get to dive into Ian Malcolm, who's a fascinating, interesting character. I'm not sure, interestingly enough, I'm not sure that Michael Crichton likes Ian Malcolm. <laughs> it's an interesting question to consider. Does, does the author of the book actually like Ian Malcolm? I mean, he brings him back for the second book. Interesting bit of um, trickery, actually, because Crichton never planned to write a second book when uh, publishing the original Jurassic Park. So, spoiler alert, Malcolm dies at the end of Jurassic Park. And then, lo and behold, he's back in Lost World. Well, he does a pretty good job of explaining it in Lost World, uh, how that works out. Because, in essence, in the book... What would be the book equivalent of happening off screen or off camera or off stage? I guess off page, <laughs> kind of, but not really. Um, but yeah, more or less, Malcolm dies off stage. We hear about it secondhand. We hear about it from someone else in the book uh, as Grant and Ellie are, are leaving uh, the park. And uh, so as a result, in the second book, he's able to kind of explain how Malcolm was on death's door and sort of get past that little conundrum. I think Malcolm is for sure a fascinating character, and I think for sure Crichton was fascinated with the prospect of this rock star-esque mathematician, chaotician, uh, complexity theory um, proponent. Uh, but I'm not sure, I'm not even sure that he loved Malcolm per se, especially having read some of Crichton's other books um, that uh, disappoint in some ways. <laughs> I'm thinking of you, State of Fear, pretty bad book and uh, pretty bad science, actually, for that matter. But yeah, I wonder, I, I wonder, given... Uh, Crichton's view in terms of uh, what the scientific establishment, or at least what how he views the scientific establishment um, in a book like State of Fear, which is basically his uh, ranting against global warming, um, how he would actually, how much he actually liked Ian Malcolm. Um, as a theoretical person, uh, as a character, and how much he just wanted to create an esoteric, uh, very flamboyant, interesting 
character that would be able to espouse some very interesting theories, not the least of which is chaos theory and this whole idea that complexity means a system, a very complex system is inherently unpredictable. Uh, it's an interesting application of chaos theory, and it certainly introduced me to chaos theory as a fascinating sort of field of, of study. Its most prevalent use is in uh, weather forecasting and understanding these sort of complex systems like that. Um, but it's not, I don't know that it's panned out to be the scientific frontier that in some ways Crichton paints it to be in the book. Nor has genetic engineering quite in that capacity yet been the um, the scientific frontier that he paints it out to be in the book. Writing this in the late 80s, Crichton certainly paints a picture of genetic engineering as the even more powerful than um, nuclear uh, power, than atomic weapons and uh, nuclear power plants and all of that. Um, I'm not sure that it's quite panned out yet, that to that point yet, but at some point it may well become something in that capacity, uh, especially as we think about the prospect of really being able to have designer babies. Back to design again. Design is everything, and it is in everything. Um, but yeah, that concept of at some point we are likely to reach a, a, a proficiency with our genetics and genetic engineering where we can do designer babies. And then there's going to be all kinds of ethical questions to explore around that. We'll save those for my discussion on Gattaca. And I promise I am definitely going to do an episode on Gattaca because that is another one of those foundational stories for me and one of those movies that I saw years ago and uh, had a profound impact on me. But we're going to discuss that in that episode. But in this episode, we're talking about Jurassic Park. And I do think there is an interesting sense in which Crichton is right that at some point, genetic engineering uh, may well become this quite powerful thing. Uh, it's a, I don't know that we're going to clone dinosaurs and do quite that kind of thing, but he does paint uh, a really fascinating picture of what that would be like in that scenario if we go down that road. And in classic cautionary tale fashion, he does deliver this fascinating, fast-paced tale that really raises those questions of, is this right? Is this okay? Are we being smart and thoughtful? What is our responsibility to the things we create? Um, and what is our responsibility to the world around us? Certainly one of the big things that I, uh, comes out of the book that sticks with me is this idea that, that Malcolm argues for is that, you know, everybody's running around on about, oh my gosh, we, we're, we're like, we're going to destroy the planet by doing this and all that. And Malcolm's a little bit like, ah, we're not going to destroy the planet. We can't really destroy the planet. We'll destroy ourselves. Sure, sure. But the planet will be fine. It'll carry right on. It's been around a lot longer than us and it'll be around a lot longer 
than us. And, uh, well, there you have it. That's sort of terrible Jeff Goldblum impression, but, <laughs> but there you have it. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting because at the time when I first read the book, I certainly didn't quite um, interpret it this way, but coming back to the book after having read uh, Crichton's much later work of uh, State of Fear, there is a sense in which there's maybe just a twinge already there or maybe the precursor to um, Crichton's climate denial um, already at work within Ian Malcolm's character in Jurassic Park and his assertion that it's not actually possible for us to destroy the planet and so forth. Um, so, and, and to a degree, I get what Malcolm's arguing for in, in that moment in the book. Uh, and there's some truth to it. Uh, there's still, uh, again, questions of, well, what is our ethical responsibility? What is our role to play? Even if we quote unquote, say we can't actually destroy the planet. What is, what is our ethical, uh, boundary then is destruction our ethical boundary? We can do everything within you know, that line, we can do everything just this side of destruction. That certainly can't be the ethical boundary, right? And that's where I began to unpack a lot of these sort of themes and ideas within uh, Jurassic Park as I started from a young age thinking about how, how could I be part of this kind of exploration, this kind of storytelling and, and get to both create something that's really engaging and fun. And that's filled with that kind of awe. And, and um, you know, it, it was a precursor to, to contact, which I've discussed in past episode in terms of that sense of scale and awe at the scale of the universe, but awe at the power of nature, uh, of experiencing something that is completely beyond uh, what we can experience in daily life. And I started falling in love with that because that to me was what immersing myself in a story was about. I didn't necessarily want to read a story about a kid who, I don't know, was dealing with bullies at school, you know, or, or something. Yeah, and that that felt a little too just close to home. I wanted to be transported uh, to whole new places, have whole new experiences that are not actually possible in my daily life. And that's not to say that that's you know where I stayed as a, as a story uh, experiencer, whether through movies. Or, or through reading, or even as a storyteller. Uh, you know, some of my favorite um, stories now are definitely, can be very real, very raw, real stories in that sense. And my favorite director uh, is uh, Terrence Malick. Uh, so he's you know generally not making uh, that kind of sort of awe-inspiring uh, type movies. They're more internal and introspective, though Tree of Life is... Definitely 
his most uh, grandiose scale movie uh, in that capacity, I would say. And happens, you know, interestingly enough, natural observation here, happens to be my favorite Terrence Malick movie. I think it mixes both of those things. But that's kind of an aside. Terrence Malick and Jurassic Park episode? Wow, didn't expect that, right? No one ever does. No one ever does. Not even me. But that's where I started playing with these ideas and, and sort of unpacking these ideas of what can I do? Can I tell stories like that? Can I begin playing with these ideas of what can scientific advancement be capable of? And then what is our responsibility if we come across these discoveries? And, and so inspired by things like Jurassic Park and, and watching Stargate when I was young. Like I started writing my own stuff that, you know, sort of mixed time travel or, or, or wormholes to other plants stuff with the more hard science fiction, plausible science fiction uh, of Michael Crichton and sort of blending these things. In an early age, actually, I was like, you know, playing around and, and writing uh, my own sort of version of Jurassic Park, just as a, I mean, it just it was a fun exercise for me to to sort of do that. Um, you know, it's kind of like fan fiction, basically. You're just kind of recreating something. I didn't have the terminology for it at the time and understanding of. It. I don't think fan fiction was a term at that point, uh, but that was something that I did, and it taught me a lot about the you know early sort of development of storytelling. And eventually I started writing really, truly my own original stuff, even at a young age. None of it's good. I mean, I'll just put that out there. None of it ever saw the light of day, and that's just fine. Truly just fine. It's better that way. But all of that to say, those were the things that are the things, really, that make Jurassic Park still a foundational uh, book and movie in, in that capacity for me. Now, having said all of that, I have revisited the book throughout the years. And most recently, I revisited the book in audiobook form. It was actually the first time I'd ever uh, done an audiobook. All, all, all respect to late uh, Mr. Michael Crichton. He sucked at dialogue. <laughs> it's one of the things that I, that I came to realize, especially listening to it, um, you know, instead of just reading it on a page, but listening to it. Um, you know, that last episode uh, I mentioned um, Stephen King's uh, endorsement of Saturn Run and, and how he likens that book to something Michael Crichton would really enjoy but would never be able to uh Right, and one of the things he cites is lacked, uh, Crichton lacked uh, Sanford's, John Sanford's ear for dialogue. And I think that definitely is true. Once I was really listening to the book in audiobook form, I got to say, there were several times, and maybe it's just, you know, after four years of uh, um, certain president, um, I can't hear the phrase, believe me without uh, like just shuddering um and and he Crichton used that phrase 
several times across various characters just in like the first like quarter of the book and I was like dude really and so it's an interesting journey as a writer to be able to revisit and I recommend this I think it's actually a good thing like revisit those old inspirations and it's okay to revisit them and spot their flaws it means you're growing it means you're developing as a storyteller. It means your uh, sensibilities, your skill level, your uh, aesthetic intelligence in, in a lot of ways uh, is improving. And that you're not at the same place you were five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years ago when you first came across and so in a lot of ways, it still remains a favorite book of mine. It's still an important and informative and foundational uh, story in that capacity. And yet I recognize its flaws. And I can't list it as one of the best books I have ever read, for sure. And yet I can recognize it for the worth that it does have. It did inspire me. And it's um, Creighton's handling of the plausibility of the science and of, and just the, the pacing of a fascinating story and of intermingling big action with cool details and how those things pay off of each other and, and develop each other, uh, really still stand to me as the worthwhile aspects of the book. Um, but yeah, Crichton's dialogue's terrible. And, uh, and sometimes his, his characters are just um, a bit flat. <laughs> but he knew how to plot a book. And he knew how to really bring in the research and the plausibility that made it, uh, made it just so enjoyable to experience and imagine the possibilities. And because of that, it remains just really pivotal and central to me. And it's probably why I'll still periodically revisit it. And of course, the movie is just fascinating. On a side note, my seven-year-old daughter has been obsessed with Camp Cretaceous, the Netflix uh, original Jurassic World series. And I gotta tell you, they... They do a pretty good job. So if you are a Jurassic Park fan, and even if you are a grown adult, you might want to check out Camp Cretaceous because it's pretty cool. So that's my relationship with Jurassic Park. And it's interesting, cautionary, maybe arguably somewhat pessimistic view of things is an important part of my formation as a science fiction storyteller and my love of hard science fiction and why I continue to gravitate towards those kinds of stories that set up believable scenarios and actually uh, go to pains to think through the logic and the science of how these things might actually play out. Still lots of rooms for speculation and uh, lots of room for just spinning a really cool story, a really cool plot that is engaging. Uh, where I divert now is that I 
want deeper uh, characters often than Crichton offered in his books. Uh, but the approach of, but his approach of really honing in on the plausibility, uh, I see it still playing out in, in a lot of science fiction writers today that I admire. And I think that influence is, is huge. And his ability to dream up these, these scenarios were definitely of a big impact on Hollywood in terms of, you know, everything from Jurassic Park to Twister and even to ER in a lot of ways. Those were probably some of his more compelling characters. And it's hard to believe that the same guy who came up with Twister in Jurassic Park was also the one who came up with ER. But, and again, Crichton was a medical professional by training, uh, but ultimately didn't pursue that career. I was very sad at his passing. Uh, I had hoped to still see some more uh, Crichton books, uh, even if I didn't always ideologically agree with uh, some of his uh, views. I still enjoyed reading his, his work, so it was definitely unfortunate in 2006, I believe it was, when he passed away. I think only 63, so was, uh, pretty young. But that influence continues with me today. And finally, speaking of uh, grieving the passing of authors, uh, last episode I got to recommend a Ben Bova book, uh, Mars Inc. And in fact, I've read uh, many Ben Bova books. I had recorded last episode before hearing the news that Ben Bova passed away uh, just at the very end of November uh, from COVID. Uh, related pneumonia. He was 88 years old uh, and, and truly a giant in the science fiction world and certainly another author that I could talk about at length whose books, I've not read all of his books by any stretch of the imagination, but I have read many, many of his books, including many in his Grand Tour series, which is just a fascinating series. Uh, so, it is, uh, it is very sad to see the end of an era um, and uh, that we continue to have uh, more and more and more Ben Bova books um, for the foreseeable future. So that is sad and unfortunate, and I just wanted to sort of mention that. Um, and uh, maybe at some point I'll do a dive into more Ben Bova work because he too is an author who uh, went to great lengths to present the plausibility of uh, different scientific scenarios, uh, different plot ideas within his stories. Uh, and, and I really appreciate that. Uh, and he was very focused on exploration and awe and discovery um, and, uh, in a lot of ways, um, arguably might even be a better, more mature Michael Crichton. Um, so I'm going to miss, even though I didn't know him personally, uh, you know, there's still that sense of loss. I'm going to miss Ben Bova. So 
it is, uh, I, I send my, my thoughts and prayers and condolences to his family, his friends, and uh, to all my fellow Ben Bova fans out there. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to another episode. Uh, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on Jurassic Park. Uh, and what was what was it for you? What what story, what movie, what book made that kind of impression on you and got you hooked on science fiction, maybe even specifically really plausible, hard science fiction? Uh, let me know. And of course, let me know what I should explore next. Uh, love to hear from you and uh, love to hear what stories are of influence and impact on you. Please be safe, stay well, watch out for each other out there, and as always, ask big questions. We'll see you later.